Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. Good to be back with you. I appreciate the chance to get away with my wife for a weekend for Valentine's Day, and Jonathan did a great job, so we didn't miss a beat in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9, and if you're visiting with us, we have plenty of extra Bibles. We give away a lot of Bibles. But I will say this, that if you want to continue to come here, we are not ashamed to say we believe the Bible is the Word of God. So it's not really what this church says or what denomination you're from, but what does the Bible say? And what God wants us to know is that we can all understand the Bible. If you have an open heart and you're willing to listen, the Lord has wonderful promises and great news that will change your life. We're going through the book of Romans And we've titled this series, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. But one thing I want to clarify here is, a lot of people think that the book of Romans is just Paul saying, let me just write everything I believe about the gospel. And I don't think that's what he's doing here. In fact, Paul hardly mentions the church at all in the book of Romans. Paul is addressing a particular situation in the first century, one that still needs to be addressed. And that is, what is the relationship of the gospel to Jews and Gentiles? So as I've mentioned, the historical background to the book of Romans is interesting in that for five years, the emperor Claudius in the, in the first century had expelled all the Jews from Rome. So in the beginning of Christianity, when the Spirit of God had come down at Pentecost and the gospel's going into all the nations... The gospel goes into Rome and people are getting saved. And then as the churches are growing, all the Jews are kicked out of Rome. And so for five years, all of the growth and progress in the, in the church in Rome was Gentile. So it only stands to reason that when the Jews came back, they were in a small minority, which wasn't always the case in big cities. In the first century, a lot of the churches were predominantly Jewish converts And then Gentiles began to flow in. But I think in the book of Romans, what Paul's addressing is the fact that there are a lot more Gentiles than Jews. And so while he's he's burdened to share the gospel, right from the beginning, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. But he says, it's to the Jew first. And throughout the book, he's kept in mind that the Christian faith is for Jews first. And so he has to address that. So I would would love for everybody to be able to think through the book of Romans in their own mind. And so I've mentioned on numerous occasions the first four chapters of Romans. And by the way, this is something if you're starting out with us, you're kind of in the middle of the movie. And actually this morning we're going in the deep end of the pool. So don't go away going, boy, this is deep stuff. Because you can go back and listen to uh, the earlier messages. But just by way of summary, the first four chapters of the book of Romans are what we call the heart of the gospel, how to get right with God, and the key word is justification. So, so in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul dispels one of life's number one myths, and that is nobody's good. Everybody's like, oh, they're good, they're so good. We go to funerals, oh, they were so good, they're in a good place now. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear, there's nobody good. We're all sinners, we're all unrighteous. Nobody is good enough to go to heaven on their own. But God in his mercy sent Jesus to die as a substitute on the cross to pay for our badness, to die for our sins, and to receive the penalty that we deserved. And then Romans 1-4 through teaches this, that when we put our faith in Christ, what Christ did on the cross secures forgiveness for us as a gift by faith. So 
if you're not familiar with that, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, go back to Romans 1 through 4. The Bible teaches that you can know that you're saved, you can know you're going to heaven, you can know you're forgiven when you trust in the finished work of Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. But the Bible doesn't stop with that. Romans 1 through 4 is justification. Romans 5 through 8, rather than the heart of the gospel, is the hope of the gospel. What's going on now and what's going to go on in the future? In Romans 6, Paul's going to tell us that now we already have justification. Now we're in sanctification. Now I'm learning to become more and more like Jesus. As a forgiven sinner, I have to remind myself that I'm not just a forgiven sinner, that I'm crucified with Christ. I'm raised to walk in a new life. I have the Holy Spirit, and now I can learn how to please God. And so we're living out our Christian life, trying to be like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, we came into chapter 8 where Paul showed us that we have this great hope that nothing could separate us from the love of God. God called us to himself. He's promised us we'll be glorified. And Pastor Jonathan reminded us that we can be secure in his love. So the heart of the gospel, justification. Hope of the gospel, sanctification. But now in Romans 9 through 11, we're going into a different direction. Three whole chapters about Jews. And you're like, what do Jews have to do with the gospel? Well, we often call this section vindication. And what we mean is this, that Paul feels it necessary to defend God against a false charge that God doesn't keep his word. And you can understand why this is the case, because if you knew the Bible at all, and you read the Old Testament, God made wonderful promises to the Jews. When he selected Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your seed. He told him that he would inherit the land forever, and Abraham became the father of, of the, the nation of Israel. And so Abraham has Isaac, the promised son. Isaac has Jacob, the promised son. And, and the Old Testament begins to unfold for us glorious promises that God's making to ethnic Jews. God promised them that one day, in Jeremiah, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He said, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon them. I'm going to forgive them of their sins. I'm going to cause them to walk in my commandments. And in the last days, the nation of Israel, the ethnic Jews will be very great and they will be heirs of the kingdom of God. And so what Paul is attempting to do is to say this. Listen, God has not failed to keep his promises. Right? Because if you hand me John 3.16 and say, hey, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, he shall not perish, have everlasting life. And I go, well, how do I know God's going to keep that? This is why in the court of law, we say a witness is only as effective as his credibility. You know, when a fellow prisoner gets up and says, yeah, Larry didn't do it, nobody listens because the other prisoner's a liar. But the Bible says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. If God spoke, he will do it. And so what Paul's doing in Romans 9 through 11, he's saying, listen, you need to understand that God has not failed to keep his promises to Israel. And, and so he's going to unfold for us this, this really helpful question that's in all of our mind. If Jesus came to the Jews and the gospel's for the Jews first, then why aren't most of the Jews saved? So we're going to begin in chapter 9, where Paul's going to start in the first five verses. And he's going to tell us, you know what, I'm so thankful that I, I can't be separated from the love of Christ but it breaks my heart 
that the Jews to whom the promises were given are separated from the love of Christ. In fact, he says, I wish I could be cursed so that they would be no longer separated from the love of Christ. And it is kind of mind-boggling, right? If God promised these wonderful promises of salvation to the Jews and Jesus came for the Jews, you're going, why would they give away something so valuable? It's kind of like my wife and I sometimes watch Antique Roadshow. Now, trust me, it's only when nothing else is on. We don't run, we don't run to the phone or to the TV to watch that, but if nothing else is on. But, you, you, you know, somebody say, what? This little statue from Uncle Bill's worth $10,000? So there's two ways that stuff happens. Sometimes it's like, yeah, my great-great-great-great-grandfather was an Indian chief, and he carved this, and you're like, wow, that's cool. But the mind-boggling one is when someone says, really? That's worth $100,000? I got it at a yard sale. Or I found it at a flea market. Now, you, you can mark this down. No one in their right mind sells for $5 something that's worth $50,000. Why would somebody give away something so valuable? And obviously, the answer is they didn't know. Okay? So in the same way, we're sitting here going, hey, Jewish friend, Jesus came to you. Why are you giving away this wonderful promised privilege? And Paul's going to answer it in a way that's like, wow, that's not what I would have expected. So let's pray, and then we'll start in verses 1 through 5. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that they are very important, and that as Christians, you want us to know the whole counsel of God. So speak to us today. Help us to understand what the Bible teaches about Jews and about us as Gentile Christians and about the gospel of salvation and your faithfulness to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want you to see in the first five verses is Paul's going to share his grief that the Jews are not saved. He's going to say that most of the ones to whom salvation is promised are perishing. Salvation is promised to them. So why are they perishing? He goes, it breaks my heart. Let's start in verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, if you just stop right there, you go, wow. If it's unceasing, probably be like every time I saw Paul, hey, Paul, how you doing? He'd be like, you know. Crappy, you know how I'm doing. Why even asking? I've told you before, I'm, I'm so sad. You know, like the donkey in the bar. Bartender says, why the long face? Right? So, so, but think about this. This struck me because, you know what? We all have to deal with grief and sorrow. You can try to protect your kids from grief and sorrow. You can try to protect your loved ones from grief and sorrow. But the reality is you can't protect anybody from grief and sorrow. All you can do is prepare them for it. But when grief and sorrow comes into our lives, what do we do about it? Well, I can drink away my troubles. I can deny my troubles. Or I can learn biblically how to deal with my troubles. And one of the things that struck me about Paul's grief and sorrow is this. That Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You see, your sorrows are either going to overwhelm you. Or as a Christian, you and I are going to learn by the power of the Holy Spirit. To let our sorrows buoy us up and draw us to Christ. Now the world might call this compartmentalizing, you know. Don't think about it so it drags you down. But I don't think it's compartmentalizing as much as it is having a bigger picture. 
So when this really struck me was when one of my children was in a great place of, of um, lostness. And I'm telling you, it's true. You're only as happy as your saddest kid, right? Parenting is our greatest joy, but it can also be our greatest pain because we love our children and we want what's best for them. But I found that if I, if I let it, my grief over my son was so overwhelming that I had to learn. And this was the passage God used to say, hey, wait, you can be sorrowful, but it doesn't have to drag you down. That you can learn to look to God and have others pray for you and live in the spirit and, and praise God and rejoice anyway. So Paul says, I'm really sad. But then you say, Paul, what's, what's your sorrow? Look at verse three. Here's why I'm sad. He says, I could wish that I were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And I'm going, wow, did he just say that? He would give up his salvation for the salvation of other Jewish people? Frankly, <clears throat> any parent would get this, right? If you have a kid that's not saved or away from God and lost, I think most parents would say, as hideous as it is, I'd rather be the one that's, that's cast into hell so that my kid could get saved. But Paul knows that's not the case. He's simply saying, I'm telling you, I have a burden for these lost people. And I want to stop and pause for that for a moment because I think sometimes as Christians, we have to stop and ask, do I have a burden for lost people? I think you've heard me tell this, but I'll remind you. A young man once said to me, you know, he said he was a Christian. I know people are going to hell. And he goes, frankly, I don't care. Now you're like, what in the world? He can't be a Christian and not care. But as I've thought about it over the years, I've, I've thought, you know, if I asked you this morning, if you're a Christian, how many of you care that people aren't saved? Everybody raise their hand. But then if I said, well, how many of you share your faith on a regular basis? How many of you pray every day as, or as much as you can for lost people? How many of you give to the Lord's work and missions and the church because you want to see more people reached? And all of a sudden, no, no, hands start going down. And it dawned on me, what's the difference between saying, I care about people, but I don't do anything, and I don't care about lost people. So this is not intended to be a guilt trip, like what's the matter with you? But it is intended to say, you know what, let the word of God probe your heart. And if you never pray for lost people, and you don't really think about it, and you don't care about it, and you don't, well, you know, I'm not an evangelist, then maybe you need to stop and pray that God will change your heart. And give you a burden for what burdens him. Because God cares about lost people. He loves people. And we can't work ourselves up into a lost people frenzy. But we can say, God, cause my heart to break for lost people like yours does. And the Holy Spirit can give us and work in us to will and work for his good pleasure. Matter of fact, when someone tells me they became a Christian, especially when it's an adult, I'll watch. You know, I don't make a big deal if somebody raises their hand. Anybody can raise their hand. But I'll watch and I'll talk to them and I'll see if I see any evidences of the Spirit of God working in their lives. And one of the things I'll ask them, I'll say, so you understand it now that Christ is the only way and, and you, you, you're saved now? And they go, oh, yes, thank God for Jesus. I go, have you told your family? And I can't tell you how many times people go, oh, no, oh, no. I'm going, wait, help me understand this. You know that Jesus is the only way, that if they're not born again, they're not going to heaven, that apart from Christ, they're going to perish. Have you ever talked to your family? No. And I'm going, are you sure you get it? 
Would you watch a blind man walk off a cliff and say, I ain't saying nothing to him. If I had the cure to cancer and my loved ones had cancer, would I say, I'm not sharing it with them. They might get mad at me, right? So, so it sort of causes us to go, wow, do we live in a culture where maybe we're so comfortable as Christians or we get diverted to the point of saying, hey, people are going to hell every day. And we can't do everything about it, but we ought to be saying, God, help me to have a burden like Paul did. Now, what burdened Paul so much is not just that Jews were perishing, but that Jews were privileged and still perishing. So look what he says. He goes, here's why I have a burden for them. They're Israelites. Now, that's a technical term that was used of the elect people of God to whom God had made wonderful promises and given them wonderful privileges. So he's just like stunned. I, it breaks my heart. I have grief at their unbelief because the privileges are theirs. So he begins to enumerate on those privileges. He says, number one, the Israelites, the adoption belongs to them. So the whole idea in the Bible of God looking down on people and choosing individuals to become his children started with the nation of Israel. So here in chapter 8, he's telling us Gentiles, you have the spirit in your heart crying out, Abba, Father, you're adopted. He goes, but what breaks my heart is that originally was promised to Jews, the promise of adoption. And then he says, and in addition to that, they had the glory and the covenants. You go, what do you mean they had the glory? Well, in the Old Testament, the glory of God was, first of all, visibly represented by a bright light. So, so a pillar of fire or, or some manifestation of what people have called the Shekinah glory of God. But what's really interesting is the glory of God was not just a light show where Jesus goes, touch my finger, E-E-T, it glows. But rather, the glory of God actually was associated with the goodness of God, the mercies of God. In fact, in Exodus, listen to this verse in chapter 34. When, when God said, or God and Moses were talking, and Moses said, he said, God, would you, would you show me your glory? Would, would you let me have a look at your glory? Or actually, it's in Exodus 33. He says, show me your glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And so there's a close connection between having the glory of God and having the mercy and compassion and goodness of God upon you. In fact, when God did pass by to show him his glory, he didn't go, see the light, see the light. As he passed by, he said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. So Paul goes, it breaks my heart that the Jews have the privilege of the glory and goodness and mercy of God right there at their fingertips to embrace and enjoy. He goes, but they don't. And then he says, and they have the covenants. They have the promise to Abraham, the promises to David. They have the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and I will... Pour out my spirit. I'll give them a new heart. I'll forgive all their sins. It's theirs. And yet, they don't believe it. And he goes, that breaks my heart. He says, they had the temple service and the law. 
See, that was a privilege. The temple service was the whole idea of how you worshiped God. See, left to ourselves, you've heard me say this many times, we're all Burger King religioners. We like it our way, right? I'm going to worship God on the deer stand, or I like to believe this, or I believe... The Bible never teaches that. If you want to have a relationship with the true and living God, you come his way. And what he taught us in the Old Testament in the temple services is, if you're going to approach God, number one, it has to be through a blood sacrifice, a substitute, a lamb, right? And if you're going to approach God, you're going to have to come through a mediator. You're not going to just march in and say, hey, God, what's up? And so the temple service and and the religion of the Old Testament was meant to invite people into a true relationship with God. And that's a privilege. Much like we as Christians, we get this, that our religion isn't about us. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And we come to God through Jesus. We believe that Jesus is our mediator who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. And Paul's going, they had access through the, through the temple service. They had the promises. And then... As we continue, he says, they even had the fathers. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He goes, it's just heartbreaking. But I want you to notice an interesting transition. He kept saying, of whom, of whom, of whom. But when it comes to Jesus, he goes, from whom. And I never saw this before, but there's, that's a different word, and it's purposeful. Because when you say, this is of mine, like the word of God, it's God's word. If the covenants are of me, then, then they're mine, okay? But Paul doesn't say the Messiah is of the Jews because that would give the impression that the Jews own him and he belongs to them and that somehow they assert a privileged possession of him. He doesn't say Messiah is of the Jews. He says Messiah is from the Jews, meaning he happened to be born through their race, but he doesn't belong to them. Instead, Paul says, Messiah is over all. Let me just remind you that. We all come in here troubled and tripping and bugged about whatever. Can I just remind you this? If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, remember who he is. He's over all. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And if you're a Christian, he says, and I am with you always. So you're like, oh, man, Satan's beating me around, and I got all these problems. I can't pay my bills. I can't get along with my marriage. My kids are doing this. He is over all. I watched a video yesterday of these people who went through years of trouble, but they said God taught us to sit in his sovereignty. And I like that, sit in his sovereignty. A lot of times I don't like what's going on in my life. You might not like what's going on in your life, but Jesus is overall. And by the way, when it says he's God blessed forever, Christians have been trying to figure out what does that mean? Because in original Greek, there are no commas, okay? So what would happen if I moved that comma one word to the right? He is overall God, blessed forever. And frankly, I think that's what Paul's doing here. I think what he's doing here is he's focusing on the deity of Jesus. He's not just saying, God bless Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is God, blessed forever. And you might say, oh, what's the big deal whether you believe Jesus is God? You know, Jesus is the man, I get it. No, it is a big deal to believe that Jesus is God. Matter of fact, 
This is the issue with Jehovah's Witnesses. This is why, according to the Bible, Jehovah's Witnesses are going to go to hell. Because the Bible says you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not a God, but Lord, that he's Jehovah, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There's no such thing as a Christianity that doesn't have a Christ who's divine. And, and so this breaks Paul's heart. He goes, I'm heartbroken that these Jews have these privileges, but they don't believe it. So naturally, what he's going to do now, he's going to say, but let me just say this. Let's get this out on the table. Verse 6 is really the premise for the rest of the, the, this whole section, all the way to chapter 11, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, okay? And what he means by that is, yes, the promises that God has made to the Jews and about the Jews and for the Jews, he has not broken his word. He's going to keep his promises, but what he's going to do in 9 through 11, and this is what I want to encourage you. We're going in the deep end now. I would love to hear that many of you went home and read Romans 9 through 11 straight through. And when you get done, go back and read it through again. Because it's deep, but it's rich. And you will be blessed. And what Paul's answering here is, is God done with the Jews? Has he permanently turned his back on them? Has he failed to keep his word? And Romans 9 through 11 is going to say, no, he has not permanently abandoned them. He has temporarily hardened them, and it's very purposeful so that Gentiles can be saved, but there will come a day in the future where God will fulfill his promises in total, and there will be a massive conversion of the nation of Israel. But before he goes there, Paul says, I need to take you in a place that some of you may not have gone on your own, and that is this. He says, you have to understand this. God's promises are not to ethnic Israel, but God's promises are to the elect in Israel. So how many Jews are on this planet right now? I don't know. But God's promises to the Israelites will not be fulfilled in all of ethnic Israel, but right now, they will be fulfilled to the elect, a small minority within the nation of Israel. And here's how he develops it. So it's, it's deep, but it's not, you know, crazy hard to follow. Paul says, I'm very sad that God promised salvation to the Jews, but they're not believing. But now he's going to say, but God hasn't failed because his promises are not to all the nation of Israel. It's to the elect within Israel. So let's see how he says this. He goes, it's not though the word of God has failed, for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, they're not all God's chosen elect people who are going to get saved just because they're Jews. And that was one of the big problems. The Jews in Paul's day thought, we're all going to heaven because we're Jews. And Paul goes, you don't go to heaven because you're a Jew. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So the place that he starts with is Isaac versus Ishmael. He goes, look, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. They're both descended from the same father, but God didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac. So let's look at this. He goes, they're not all children because they're Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your seed will be named. And then in verse six, he says, that is, it's not the children of the flesh that would be Ishmael, who are children of God, but the children of the promise, who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, 
at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I get that, all right. Except the Jews would say, yeah, but come on, Paul. Ishmael was from a pagan mother. So that, that's not really, he didn't have a Jewish mom and dad. And Paul goes, all right, well, let me give you another one then, verse 10. And not only this, he goes, how about if I give you a Jewish mother and father? Let's take Rebecca and Isaac. He says, there was Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Though the twins were not yet born, so here there's two boys in her belly, right? Though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, now here's the key, according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, he picks up. Who? Jacob. Now, let me clear this up. People look at this and they go, oh, all God was doing there is he knew Jacob would be a good boy and Esau would be a bad boy. And I'm going, that's about the opposite of what Paul's saying. He's saying it has nothing to do with good works or bad works. It has everything to do with his elective purpose and his choice. Now, frankly, you ought to start getting a little uncomfortable. What? He's looking down two babies and he chooses one. He doesn't choose the other. That makes me a little uncomfortable. Right? Has nothing to do with, oh, God knew Jacob would be a good boy. It's all his choice. It's his purpose. It's his calling. Right? Now, let's look at the next verse because this one's tough. He says, because of him who calls, go to the next verse. He goes, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So at first, um, God says, hey, the first one to come out is going to be served by the second one. That's not how it worked in Jewish culture. The firstborn was the man. But then he goes, just as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Okay, now I got a problem here. Did he just say that? God's a hater? God's looking down at these two babies inside the womb, and one of them he loves and one of them he hates. And we want to go, well, you know, because he, he loves Jacob because he's good, and he hates Esau because he's bad. Show me in the Bible where anybody's good. Now, I need to understand that when I compare Scripture with Scripture, when God says he hates someone, it's not the kind of hate that we're thinking of. In fact, hate in the context can have various meanings. Let me remind you what Jesus said. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. Now, did any of you, when you first read that, run home and say, Mom and Dad, I hate your stinking guts, and I'll never talk to you again because I'm going to follow Jesus. He was... He was demonstrating that compared to your loyal love of following him, that you're going to be willing to turn your back on your family, right? So God didn't look down and say, I can't stand Esau's stinking guts, a little jerk. He simply says, in my sovereignty, I chose, according to my purpose, to set my elective love on Jacob. Now, frankly, I'll join you. That doesn't seem fair. That's, that doesn't seem just on God's part. And Paul's like, thanks for asking that. Let's keep going. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Wait a minute, you're telling me that God picks who he's going to save? That ain't fair. That's unjust. And Paul goes, is it really unjust? Let's think that through. Is it really unjust for God to say to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So wait a minute. If there's three guilty sinners there, is it wrong for God to say, I choose to have mercy on that one and not them? See, in our mind, we're going, if you don't have mercy on everybody, then you can't have mercy on anybody. And God goes, really? Is, is, that, is that how justice works? In fact, I would suggest that you might not want justice. You might not want completely what you deserve for your sin. Why doesn't God just give everybody what's fair? I don't think you would want that. Because if he gives everybody what they deserve, we all go to hell. So, is he wrong if he says, I will choose to have mercy on some and not others? And you're like, oh, no, no. It's my will. I remember. He didn't have mercy on me because he chose me. He had mercy on me because I was seeking him. I was running after him, and I found him, and I embraced him. And Paul goes, really? It doesn't depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs. But on God who has mercy. And you're like, I remember when I sought God. You can't tell me that. I remember when I began to be interested in the Bible and wanted to explore and find God. That was my will. And God's going, no, it wasn't. You did seek after me, but it's because I chose you. I worked in your heart. You sought me because I chose you. When you were dead in your sins, when you were lost, I made you alive. I was bringing you to myself. Now again, do I like that verse? Do I go, beautiful. I go, oh, that's kind of hard to swallow, right? So Paul goes, I get it. I know this is a hard doctor. That's why I said we're going in the deep end. Let's keep reading. Next verse. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Hmm. So wait a minute. So you're telling me of all these people, there's seven billion down here on earth, God chooses to have mercy on some and others he hardens. No, I didn't tell you that. God did. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, let's look at it this way. Number one, rather than get bent out of shape wondering why God doesn't have mercy on everybody, perhaps we should get bent out of shape wondering why he has mercy on anybody, and especially you and me. Because the reality is, it shouldn't shock us when God demonstrates his power and his wrath. We're, we are like, what just happened? You know, somebody blasphemes God and God strikes him dead. What just happened? It shouldn't surprise us that God destroys sinners. What should surprise us is that he spares sinners. It should surprise us that of the 7 billion people prancing around down here on earth, most of them are in absolute rebellion against God. And it's their fault. And the Bible is very clear. When people go to hell, it's their fault. The Bible says, God is not willing for any to perish. Whosoever will may come. The book of Revelation says, on judgment day, the books are open and men are judged for their deeds. So you're going, wait a minute, Tom. It can't be their fault because how can they resist his will? Paul's like, thanks for asking that. Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? 
So, Tom, uh, Paul, wait a minute. So you're saying that God made these promises to the Jews, and they're not believing. Well, then it's his fault. Paul goes, no, it's not his fault. Number one, he didn't promise it to all the Jews, only the Jews he elected. And you go, what do you mean? He chose one and not the other? That's not fair. And Paul goes, yeah, it's fair. There's no injustice with God if he wants to have mercy on some, and he hardens others. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but whether God has mercy on them. Well, then he can't put anybody in hell because how can they resist his will? Now, I, that's, I'm glad he asked that, aren't you? But what I would have expected him to say is, let me break this down. Let me tease this out in a way that, that maybe you can understand it. But he doesn't. He goes, why does he still find fault? Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, old man? Who answers back to God. In essence he said. Maybe we need to to think back. What do we mean by God? Like. Yeah Paul tell God. I want to see him in my office. We've got some things we need to talk about. He's got some explaining to do. And God's like. I I heard you might be upset. With some of the the decisions. I I was thinking about consulting you ahead of time. Like, Like we gotta back off and go. Wait a minute. Who is God? What does it mean to be God? Right? His greatness is unsearchable. We'll never fully understand him. Now, if this was the only verse about God, I'd be scared. But there's tons of verses about his mercy, his love, his grace, his compassion. But Paul doesn't say, let me soften it up here. God has a right to do whatever he wants because he's God. He says, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? So, do you see where Paul's going with this? When I hear about God's sovereign grace election and him having mercy on me, my human rebellious spirit says, that ain't right, that ain't fair, and he's got some things he needs to answer. And Paul starts by saying, well, you know what? I want you to think about God. Does he really have to answer to us? Does he really have to run it by us and make sure we're good with it? So, let's continue to see what he says here. We'll go to the next, next slide. He says, doesn't the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although he's willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, it's not like God's like, oh, I just, children, more candy. It's okay, be bad. It doesn't matter. He's willing to display his wrath, but actually he's endured with much patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, we're going to come back to that because what, what I don't think God's telling us here is I'm a great Frankenstein up in heaven going, I love to create beings so I can destroy them. I've prepared them to destroy them. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God says, whosoever will may come. And you're going, well, well wait, there's, there's some tension here then. And I'm going... You think? But this is why I just find it so sad that people go, oh, I don't believe God chose me. I think he just chose me because I chose him. And I'm going, did you not read any of this passage? You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, did God say, when it makes perfect sense to you, then you might want to think about embracing it. Okay? But here's the kicker. See, Paul says, if you're a Christian, you need to understand that everything God did in election, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. 
which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, here's what I want you to think about, because this just blew me away this week as I studied that. We could come away from this being mad, sad, or feeling had at God, like, I don't like the way you're doing this. Or rather than blame him for not saving everybody or doing it my way or his, but I ought to go, God, thank you so much for your mercy to me. Why? Why am I a vessel of mercy? It's not because I'm smarter than the average bear. Why am I a Christian? Oh, God, thank you for your glorious mercy to me that I have been chosen according to your purpose. I love you, Jesus. Thank you. Instead of walking up and saying, you mean to tell me God chose me? You ought to fall down and say, oh, God, (laughs) thank you for choosing me. And bless the Lord, even if I don't understand it. Now, let me close with some applications. Number one, obviously, we've got a lot of questions here. One of them is this. What about my loved ones? What if they're not chosen? Listen, the Bible in chapter 10, even though Paul believes in election, chapter 10, verse 1, he goes, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for their salvation. He doesn't go, they're not elect, so I don't pray for them. He doesn't know who's elect and who's not. So please, this is what I tell people. I believe like a sovereign grace Calvinist, and I preach and pray like an Arminian. (laughs) The Bible is very clear. God loves people. He wants them to come to Jesus, and he wants us to plead and pray and beg and give and serve and get as many people into the kingdom of God as we can. I don't sit around going, they laughed at me. They're not elect. My kid's not following Jesus right now. He must not be elect. That's God's business. My business is to plead with them, to love them, to teach them. And this is why I want to plead with you to come back tonight to pray. No, we're not having donuts and treats and trinkets and a, you know, a fun games and light ourselves on fire. We're going to come back and we're going to pray. Because that's what God wants us to do. And in his sovereignty, he chooses to use prayer to make a difference on this planet. And so I want you to come back and let's pray for our kids. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for our church. Let's pray for our youth group. Let's pray for our spouses. Let's pray that God will pour out his mercy right here in Yardley, right here in Bucks County. So, as I close, I hope you and I will, rather than be confounded and confused, will be comforted. Oh, God, thank you for your mercy. But I can imagine that some of you out there may have a very good question. What if I'm not one of the chosen? All right, I want to start with that one. What if I'm not one of the chosen? An easy way for you to solve that one. Come to Jesus. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out. Come to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus, Lord, I believe you died for me. I believe I'm a sinner. I'm willing to repent and put my faith in you. I want you to save me. I want to cling to the gospel promises and believe as my Lord and Savior. And guess what? Do that, and you can mark this down. You're chosen. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't want to. You would say, I don't care about them stupid Christians. It's foolishness. So don't let Satan get you going, oh, you're not elect. Come to Jesus. Okay? Secondly, oh, I'm worried about whether my kids are elect. God, same answer. Come to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. Pray to him night and day for your kids. And even if 
as with my father, I wasn't there when he drew his last breath. Far as I know, my dad never accepted Christ, but I don't go, oh, I know my dad's in hell. He's not elect. Because the thief on the cross, on those six hours that Friday, if I wasn't there and he was my dad, I would have said, my dad wasn't elect. He went to hell. Because I wouldn't have known then in the last couple hours he turned to Christ. So more importantly is have your loved ones heard the gospel? And if they die without telling you they got saved, you don't know. I'm not trying to preach everybody into heaven, but don't let election cause you go, oh no, I'm crippled, I don't know who's elect. All I can say is this, if you're a Christian, you can know this, God had mercy on you. You're called and you can take great comfort in that. But then we go out and we just beg and pray for others to come to Jesus. So let's praise God for his mercy. And lastly, this doesn't discount human responsibility. If you go out of here again today and you choose not to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you die and go to hell, you got one person to blame, and that's you. So that's why the Bible always says, now is the time of salvation. While you can, while the opportunity is available, come to Jesus. And if you go, I've been thinking about doing that, can I urge you today to say, I'm ready to follow Christ. You know, I had some issues in my life, but I'm ready to follow Jesus. I thank him that he shed his blood to have mercy on me. And even as a little child, five, six, seven years old, you can, the best you know how in your heart, say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Be my Lord and Savior. And those of us who can look back on a time, God doesn't want you to go, glad you chose me. He wants you to go, aren't you glad I chose you? Can you find joy in the mercy I've shown to you? And if he didn't spare his own son, but he had mercy on you, he'll get us through this junk, right? He'll take us all the way home. So the book of Romans, even the hard sayings, the deep teaching is designed to bless us, not to burden and confuse us. So let's take a moment to thank the Lord. Father, oh, thank you for your glorious words, the whole counsel of God. Thank you that you are a God who is full of compassion, full of mercy. And Lord, there's a tension and a mystery I don't understand how it doesn't depend on the man who wills and yet it's their fault. But I thank you, Father, for choosing me, having mercy on me, and choosing your saints here this morning who have been saved by grace. May we love you. May we go out this week and serve you, not because we're scared of you, but because we're thankful because you had mercy on us. May we be like the demoniac who was saved and healed, and, and you said, go and tell your friends how the Lord had mercy on you. Father, help us to get a burden for souls, to come back and pray tonight for the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here today and you're not sure that God has had mercy on you, Jesus said, if you come to me, I won't cast you out. Right there in your seat, right now, say to him, Lord Jesus, just between you and him, I believe you died and rose again for me. And I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I'm willing to follow you. I trust you. I want to receive your gift. And we thank you so much, dear Lord, as a, as a body and as a Christian family for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hope to see many of you tonight. Let me remind you, we have a baptism coming up. If you're still considering it, your time is running out. So let us know this morning. Have a great day.